I'm not into PowerPoints. You know, you probably know I'm not into PowerPoints. Not that I object to them, I just know good at them. But I thought if I brought along something visual, if you're nodding off to sleep when you wake up, you'll be able to say, oh, that's what she's talking about. So, so I brought my little shop scales along because I think they're gorgeous anyway. And I hope it will be a visual something to you. I'm not speaking about the scales of justice. I want to talk about balance. So it's not really, they don't balance terribly well, I must admit. But um, I just thought it's there and it might recall things to you as I go. We've lost the kids, we've lost the kids. So for a number of reasons, I have spent time recently thinking about balance, um, both in individual lives and in the community and in the church. 1 Peter 5.8 says this, Be well balanced. I've missed that. Be well balanced and always alert. We know this next bit. Because your enemy, the devil, roams around incessantly like a roaring lion looking for its prey to devour. Now that sounds to me as if an unbalanced Christian life puts us in the place where the enemy is able to attack and damage us. So balance matters. Let's pray. Lord, I, I just bring words and I pray that the words would stir in people's hearts and cause us to think and cause us to assess and cause us to be encouraged um, and to grow. So, Lord, I ask you to use those words for you to anoint them in people's lives in ways that they know and I don't know that they need, but you do. Lord, bring your anointing, I pray, on these words this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So, why have I been thinking about balance? Well, it seems to me that as a society here and maybe worldwide, we have lost a capacity to approach differences, problems, important questions with balance. People assume that their view of moral, and maybe it's not very different, but I think it's accelerated. People assume that their view of moral, ethical, political, religious issues is right, and therefore if you do not agree with them, you must be wrong. And that's very difficult, I think, to live in that situation. Think of the gender questions that have so dominated public discussion. There's no room left, it would seem, for people to freely, graciously disagree. We have to be on the right side of the discussion. This doesn't mean that I think the answers are easy to these fraught questions, but to be able to acknowledge a contrasting, competing while still knowing the ground you stand on is surely necessary. The conflict that's arisen about the maybe poorly phrased statements by Israel Folau have illustrated again how polarised we've become. You can't really talk about it. It's become very polarised. I have so enjoyed Darren's meanderings along the road of law and grace, and I think much of what he says touches on this area of balance and how thankful I am for the revelation by the Spirit 
that the heart of God to individual of what it is to individual believers that in the midst of complexity we can come back to the touchstone of a loving God and our love and loving our neighbours. You know, we we have a, a basis on which to stand. Now, I I wonder if I'm the only person here who has felt confused as I try to reconcile things in the Christian life that don't sort of match up as I try to find a balance between things that seem to be the complete opposite of one another. For example, we're saved by the wonderful grace of God. We did nothing to earn it, and no matter how long I've been a Christian and what I might have done for God, this truth remains the same. God doesn't love me because I'm good. He loved me while I was still a sinner, and he still does. Nothing separates me from the love of God, and no sin is too great for him to give. But at the same time... Jesus said, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. That one verse, 35, 40 years ago, drove me nuts. It made me very angry that he could say all that other stuff and yet say that to me. But I had to be perfect, even though I didn't have to be perfect because he loved me even when I wasn't perfect. You know, it just didn't make sense. We are saved by the finished work of Christ. God predestined me to be a beloved child in his family. All I have to do is believe, to have faith. Indeed, what is not faith is sin, we're told. But then in the book of James, we read that if I don't produce godly works, if I don't don't do the right things, then my faith is empty and without substance. How do you put those two things together? We're called to be people who live on the principles of forgiveness in every area and relationship. We are to love those who use us badly, turn the other cheek, forgive and forgive and forgive. But at the same time, we are to be people who can judge a situation righteously. Be willing to separate ourselves from Christians who are living in an ungodly way. We have to forgive and forgive and leave judgment to God, and yet at the same time we have to be able to judge wisely. We're called to rest in the Spirit and to strive to please God. To live generously and not worry about tomorrow while being wise stewards of what God has given us. We're set free from the law and yet we have to live by the law of the kingdom as Darren has been talking about the last few weeks. And Jesus said that our righteousness has to be higher than that of the scribes and Pharisees who prided themselves in living the law perfectly. Has anyone else puzzled over any of those contradictions? Much of our growth to maturity as Christians is to do with finding the balance in those seemingly mutually exclusive teachings, and and balance is vital. How much confusion and pain and dishonouring of the name of the Lord has come from unbalanced Christians? The ones who say, Jesus always heals, so if you aren't healed, it must be your lack of faith. That's a wicked thing to say, and very, very damaging to people. People that say the grace of God covers all sin, so it's okay to have an affair, cheat the tax department, as long as you repent. God has predestined me to be with him forever, so there's no need to pray or to seek to grow. God's going to do it anyway. The prosperity gospel can be very damaging. To speak in tongues or not to speak in tongues. A fascination with an emphasis on the devil rather than God. The sovereignty of God is going to sort anything, everything out anyway. Alongside, the, then there are Christians who spend their whole life beseeching and begging God to do things that they're asked for, you know, that they've already asked for. 
There is a truth in all of those things, but taken on their own, there is a grave danger of moving off into error. And remember, the devil is on the lookout for people who have moved off to the extreme end of truth and become unbalanced. He's waiting to devour them. Balance, being aware of the whole counsel of God, is vital. And one comfort to me is that this is not a new challenge to the church. Paul's famous letter to the Corinthians was addressing a lack of balance. He was not saying that the gifts of the Spirit were of the devil, as some Christians have interpreted the passage. He was not condemning speaking in tongues. Indeed, he said in the same letter that he thanked God that he prayed in tongues more than all the rest of them. He was, however, correcting them for imbalance. Speaking in tongues for belief is, is a blessing for believers. But if I stood here in front of you at this point and blessed myself senseless by speaking in tongues for 30 minutes, I would be misusing a gift. I would be not be edifying you, and I would probably cause some of you to flee out the door and never come back. He was addressing doctrinal and practical imbalance, and the church consistently needs to do this, and individuals need to do it. In the past, when I thought about balance, my mental image was that of a balance like this. A little bit of history in science labs when I was growing up and when I was first teaching science, we used to have glass boxes along the side of the benches with beam balances in them, which were like this, only they were brass and they had the little trays and you would come with your piece of filter paper and put it on inside and put your chemical on it and then you get your box with the masses and take the tweezers and put the masses on the other side until the needle in the middle got to the to the one spot and you knew that it was balanced and then you would count up what the masses were and know how much you had. Does anybody have any recall of doing that? Now we just have an electronic balance and you whack it on and there it is. And you don't have the sense of balance that we used to have when you had to get trays to actually balance. Very sensitive. Or I guess I thought of the seesaw problems that you had in maths or science. We had two people on a seesaw trying to balance and you had to work out if this one weighed that much and that one weighed this much, where do they have to move to on the balance to get, you know, the distance times the weight? Does anybody remember doing those? Yeah, they were, they were great fun. But that sense that if you got to the wrong spot, the seesaw would go down or go up the wrong way. And, and so was that, that tipping around? Um, now that can be a helpful view of balance, and there's a truth in it, but for too much emphasis on rules and regulations and we're racing down, step down the hill, and if we throw all the rules and, tells, rules and regulations out, we find the beam tilts back the other way. It can be a helpful image. Um, you know, you, so you're balancing your authority, you're balancing grace, you're balancing giving, your use of time, all those things. You're racing backwards and forwards to try and maintain a balance. But all of that, when I just think of it now, sounds like hard work and insecurity. Am I ever going to be sure that I have the right emphasis, the right amount of activity, the right amount of effort? And this can result in anxiety as to whether I'm being a good parent, a loyal friend, a mature Christian. And I don't think the Lord wants us to be anxious in that way. I think I now see balance in a more organic way. I see it more like poise or the sure-footedness of a highly trained acrobat who can perform amazing contortions and land gracefully with their foot on just the right spot, perfectly balanced. 
A biblical image for that perfect, perfect balance is Psalm 118.33 where he says, He makes my feet like hinds feet, H-I-N-D-S, and sets me upon high places. So the hind is an image of a tiny deer or maybe a goat that leaps around seemingly vertical cliffs. You've probably seen them on Attenborough and things like that, and they got these cliff faces and they can put these tiny feet on a ledge that's about this big, and they just land there. They have incredible poise and sure-footedness. And I think I see balance more in that light now than in the beam balance. That sort of poise or balance comes from internal and bodily training experience and experience and many stumbles along the way. It's a picture of how we come to a balanced Christian life, time, experience, failures and successes, until we know our master so well that we are free to live life with the anxiety of always needing to check that we aren't making mistakes all the time. It comes with a recognition of the spirit of the law and a desire to grow in Christ-likeness. Balance, it needs to be said, is never static. You don't get it right forever. Sadly, There is movement, change, adjustment needed to maintain it. We should aim for the maturity that enables us to find poise simply by a slight change of weight, of emphasis, of recognition of our errors. And this is true of our personal life and the church life. Much of the balance that maturity and experience should bring as Christian needs to be based on a growing understanding of scripture and to a great extent truths that have been held for centuries by the majority of Christians. I don't think there's any, to me there's no question about that, there needs to be an acknowledge of what our base is. As an aside, I have read that Israel Falau is part of a small fellowship and there's nothing wrong with small, is there? No. Part of a small fellowship started and led by his father as a breakaway from a well-known Pentecostal denomination, and the majority of the members are from that family. That may bring its own problems. Very difficult to hold a different view or to question a view in that situation. Less balanced, possibly, is the fact I have read that a basis for their stance, a basis for their breakaway, is that they do not believe that the Trinity is spoken of in the Bible. So what, you might ask? Don't believe in the Trinity. Well, a Trinitarian view has been part of basic Christian understanding for nearly 2,000 years. There is no passage, I have to admit, that says, you will believe this about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There is no one passage that says that. But they are present all through the Bible. The Spirit is spoken of in the first chapter of Genesis. Jesus spoke of sending the Holy Spirit to lead and guide and comfort us. And Paul often blessed the church in his letters in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. So the Trinity is there and it's basic to Christian understanding of God. A church, a believer who chooses to believe that they have received special revelation from God, and that's what I guess this fellowship is, this particular fellowship I'm talking about is saying, and therefore all other Christians are deceived, is a person standing on a slippery slope. They're not in balance. They're not able to mature in that, in that place. Beware of people with special revelation. As a church, we need to be aware of people who come with special revelation. It's very unlikely that God is going to decide after 2,000 years that he's going to change the basis of the way he's revealed himself to the world. 
So watch, it's an indication of imbalance. We need to know what truths we stand on. But we also need to be willing to admit our views may be rigid, wrong, or unbalanced. Recently, I was blessed enough to go to China for a, 10 days or so, and when I came home, I was chatting away to my 37-year-old son on the phone, and we talked about all sorts of things. I taught him, told him how many preconceived ideas I'd had that I didn't know that I had that had got completely thrown up in the air and I came back with a very different view in all sorts of areas. And we chatted away about that. And then two days later, he rang me, said, Mum, I just wanted, I just want to tell you that I am so encouraged by the fact that at the age you are, you are still able to change and that your ideas are not rigid. And we then had this, I thanked him. It was very, I was very blessed. But I, we then had this lovely conversation about the things that don't change. And the things that you need to know that you stand on and a capacity to recognise you might be wrong. <laughs> um, you might be just ignorant. <laughs> so I found that a real blessing. And you young ones, tell your parents when you're blessed by something they do. It was so nice. So he does it quite often, really. Um, <clears throat> of course, look, along with that, it is true that sometimes circumstances hit our lives a severe injury, the loss of a job, a deep disappointment, a broken relationship, death of someone you love, and your balance is catastrophically disturbed. You just go down the hill. You know, you're not balanced in that situation. It takes courage and time and support and love to find a new balance in your life. You'll only probably find it if you know what you stand on. The only thing I stood on for a long time was God is good. I didn't know what else I believed, but God is good. And that was the thing I stood on as the rest of my life returned to balance. And one significant role of the church is to help fellow believers when their world has been up to, upended. You know, we will all make mistakes in this whole area of balance and how we express ourselves. I don't know nearly as much now as I did when I was a new Christian. Goodness me, I had the answers to everything when I was a new Christian. I knew what you should do, what you should believe, where you should go. I don't really know any of that any longer. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Maybe I was very stupid when I was younger. <clears throat> now, we're all aware of the, the helpful image of the church being a body made of many cells and parts and how necessary for health it is for the cells that make up our body, for the organs and the limbs and the bits of pieces to function together in harmony. A few cells in your own life, in the body of ch the church, doing their own thing is cancer. And they can destroy the whole body. For a church grouping to be healthy and balanced, it needs to have members that are growing towards balance in their individual lives. So it is not something that can just be manufactured by the leadership. For a healthy church, you need healthy members who are individually challenging the balance in their life and growing into that sort of maturity. <clears throat> when I was preparing, I struggled for a while as to how to try and illustrate the characteristics of a balanced church. And then I realised that because the church is a family, 
We can look at the struggle of your average Christian family as it tries to live out the gospel and relate that experience fairly directly to some of the struggles we then face as a church family. Now, obviously, when I speak of families, I'm thinking about single people, marriages and families with children, older people, anyone who's seeking to please God, who is part of our family who wants to live out the truths of the kingdom in the world we live in. So I'm not saying it's only people, mums and dads with two children, right? These characteristics that I'm listing here are not in any particular significant order. It's just how they tumbled into my head. So first of all, I thought for a family to function well, there needs to be some agreed sense of direction and purpose. We love one another and we want to spend our life together. Um, we, we have this incredible privilege of children. We want to do our very best for them, guiding and loving and training them. I'm on my own, but I want to be a generous person, loving an extended family, being a blessing to my friends, becoming an interested, involved member of the community. A family or an individual without some agreed purpose, and look, your purpose may not have been well thought through, and maybe that would be a good thing to do, what actually is a purpose in your life? What is a direction? Um, a person without that will come apart when pressures hit. If you don't have a reason, you don't, well, they won't necessarily come apart, but it's easier to come apart. And a church without purpose or direction will do the same thing. It will be at the whim of some new idea or doctrine. People will come in and play power games so that their agenda becomes central and splits develop very quickly. HCC is always trying to find and express its purpose for, for existence. Darren himself over the years has given much thought to this and shared it with us and we've walked it through together. We want our fellowship to be a place of loving, caring, restoring relationships with a communal life that includes worship, fellowship, discipleship, service and evangelism. To have agreed purpose and direction helps us keep balanced as we think about whether or not to take on something new. Does taking on a huge debt to build another Christian cathedral fit with our purpose? Nope. Well, let's not go down that path. Does a food bank and a cafe to bless those in need and isolation in our community fit with our purpose? Yes. And what a blessing Soul Warmers is proving to be. Do we want to bless Christians in other countries who are not as fortunate as we are? Medical supplies, educational assistance in the Congo, blessings, blessing those who serve in the Philippines, that all fits within our sense of purpose. So we can say yes. So a church with a, a family with a sense of purpose, a church with a sense of purpose, you're able to keep your balance when things try to push your buttons. Another struggle for families can be the question of godly authority. Does the man being the head of the family mean that he is infallible? Does it give him the right to deal harshly, to control all the finances of the family, to set the rules for behaviour, to strike his wife whenever he's displeased? I think not. But scripture has been used in an unbalanced way by Christians to excuse just about anything. After all, Ephesians 5.24 says that wives should be subject to their husbands in everything. Well, there you go. We've got the reason. 
That's unbalanced because the next verse says, Husbands, love your wives in the same way as Jesus loved the church and gave himself up for them. Now, that's a very generous sort of love, being willing to die for it. That's not the big fist. That's not subjugation by humiliation. It's a sort of relational love and understanding that draws people together. That's balance. That's balance. And it's not easy to work that out when, as a Christian, you're trying to follow what the Bible tells you to do. You've got to work it out for yourselves. <clears throat> that sort of love means that there is open dialogue, freedom, respect, and when eventually a decision has to be made, there is trust and acceptance on both sides. Leadership in the church can be very fraught. Leaders can misuse their authority and the respect they're held in. Many a church has been completely unravelled because of controlling, manipulative leadership. And yet we need shepherds. We need people with vision, with a sense of direction, a love for the flock and a call from God. God has given people gifts in this area for the good of the body. We just have to strive to maintain balance. Leaders need to watch out for pride, for self-righteousness, for the temptations that the enemy will waft in front of them. A desire to control and manipulate. That's the role the leaders have to watch. And we need to encourage them and support them in that. <coughs> Sheep, that's us, members of the body, while showing respect and gratitude for these people who are willing to take on uncomfortable roles, must not set them up as idols. We are to resist gossip and criticism and rebellion. Just because we don't agree with something they do, we do not have the right to tear down the leadership. Remember, their loving care of us involves them too laying down their lives. They don't have to do this. We don't even pay our pastors to do it. They don't have to do it. I'm not saying this is happening. I'm just saying we need to be aware of this. And surely that should call forth our loving support and respect. And if there is a need to question anything, we need to learn how to do this in an edifying and godly way. That's balance. Ask the question, but do it right. Authority is one of the major, was one of the major issues with Adam and Eve and the fall. And it still is there in human relationships. We need always to watch our balancing act in that area. <clears throat> Another struggle, I think, for Christians can be stewardship and possessions. We are part of the secular Australia society, so the challenges that scripture gives us in this area of living simply not being possessed by our possessions, trusting God to provide our needs, giving away our coat to someone who needs it, all have to be worked out in the context of our society. It would not really achieve much if all these Christians here decided to give away everything and wander the highways and expect God to provide their daily bread. But in a sense, that's what Christian, the, the, the New Testament says, you know, don't worry about it and God will provide it. And people have taken that to an extreme. We can't inflict on our children the humiliation of them or us wearing just one set of basic clothing because Jesus said we're not to worry about how we'll be clothed. We do need a car in this far-flung urban culture, but how big and how expensive and how luxurious does it need to be? 
We need to watch the power of possessions in our lives. I might like those shoes, but do I really need them? Why do we need a house with four bathrooms and a study and a playroom and a formal dining room, etc., etc., etc.? Is this the best stewardship of my possessions? What's my motivation? There is so much tied up in this area of stewardship. Hearing what God wants us to do, recognising our vanity and the desire to impress, realising that I'm just following after the lusts of the eyes, but also learning to enjoy and be grateful for the good things God has given us. So I don't think Christians are meant to be miserable, mean-spirited. You know, we, we have everything given to us, but we have to find the balance in those things. The church too has to struggle with this. Are the members tithing faithfully? Should money be spent largely on making things more and more comfortable for the flock? Or should it be given to those with greater need? I mean, I struggle with the money we will spend putting in the soundproofing downstairs, putting in more air conditioning downstairs. I, I, I don't struggle with the fact we're doing it, but I have to balance it in my head and think, who are we mainly doing it for? To be honest, if it was just for us, I would think, well, suck it up and you know cope with the noise. But I think it's for soul warmers. It's for other people that come into the building where it's uncomfortable for them. Um, and we can do something about it, and so we should. Do you understand what I'm saying there? It, it, it's just how do we use our resources to fulfil the purpose of reaching out to the world? How do we recognise when God is prompting us to give to some particular need and when is it really just a honey-tongued preacher trying to trick the money out of our pocket? We have to find the balance. There are so many other aspects of family life I could look at. The balance needed between work and relaxation. Finding time to maintain your relationship in the midst of pressures. I'm glad Nikki and Darren have gone away for the weekend. Just go away and have a weekend to themselves. Leave us, leave the sheep to get on with life. <laughs> it's very important. How to balance the need to care for your own family and yet be reaching out in love to others. What sort of guidelines do we need to live a holy life in our community, which is increasingly chasing out after all sorts of ungodly excess and yet still be part of our community? How do you live in harmony with that sibling or aunt or cousin who rubs you up the wrong way? That's in, our nat in the natural. But how do you, it, it, in the case you haven't realised, the same thing as that can happen in the church. People in church can rub you up the wrong way too. And we're going to be sharing eternity with one another. That's a long time. The difficult balance, so that, that's, you know, another thing to look at. The difficult balance of rules and guidelines providing freedom. The challenge of guiding and growing children. Similarly, in the church, the whole area of discipleship is an ongoing challenge because each one of us will need to walk a different path. We grow at different rates. God does different things. And we have to struggle with judgment sometimes when we try to live with a fellow believer who seems to be getting away with stuff that we know is wrong. They're walking their path. I'm walking my path. And then there's the basic question of our belief that underpins everything we do. What do we believe and how do we interpret the practice? I'm going to give you a story, which I think I've shared once before, but in the 80s, we'd only been in 
full gospel churches from we were we were still in the Anglican church, but we'd only been that for a few years. And a number of people came and lived in our house over that period of time, but probably the standout, there was one who borrowed my husband's work car while we were away and went for a 120-kilometre joyride in it, and that was a little awkward. Um, but <laughs> this particular woman came into our life, Jo, and she was very large. I don't mean she was fat, she was just a big woman, very strong, very aggressive, very noisy, very funny, very delightful, but boy, she was a challenge. She lived, and she was also a lesbian and thought I was rather lovely, which added to the complications of things. She she lived just down the road in a flat, so we used to see her often. She would appear in a rage about something, in need about something, and it would go on and on. At one stage, I don't know why, we were in the backyard and she was yelling about something. Anyway, she hit me very hard on the face, and I had this, I should go back, the question that John and I had was, God... How do we love someone? When can we stop loving? And he kept saying, keep loving, keep loving. There is no... Anyway, she hit me on the face. And the immediate thing that came to my mind was when Jesus said, if someone strikes you on one cheek, turn the other. I was amazed that that came to me at that point. I didn't burst into tears and get sorry for myself. And I didn't tell anybody that it had happened. Someone did ask me about the bruise and I made up a lie. But... So that went on, and then at some stage in this two or two, three-year process, she got kicked out of her accommodation. So she came to live with us, lived in our back room, um, and she she was not a nice house guest. Uh, she was very loud and very grumpy. She was working at Craigieburn at this stage, had a huge black motorbike, which would park out the front. She had a very nasty dog that used to leap our fence and kill our neighbour's chickens. She used to smoke pot in the shed. We kept saying, God, do we keep going? Yes, do we keep going? Yes. And look, a lot of the time I loved her. She was very grumpy. This was around about Christmas time. We had friends and family coming through the house and he was this large, black, black-spirited, grumpy person living in our house. She stole money from us. We forgave that. On one occasion, we were renovating our house. I came in from somewhere and there was my husband up a ladder doing something and Joe was standing below with a very sharp carving knife threatening him. I don't know what it was about. I just remember, I thought, oh, I think I'll take the children and go for a walk. <laughs> so I just abandoned my husband up the ladder and <laughs> and he sorted it out. He, it, I've still got the knife and I don't like using it, I have to be honest. So look, it was this process of forgiving and forgiving and forgiving and coming back to God. How do we love this person? When do we stop loving? Is there a limit? The limit came. When we were out in the front garden one day and, my, and our son, who would have only been three or four, he was little, and Joe was in a furious mood and she hit him across the face. I was standing there with the hose in my hand at that stage. I just turned the hose full on her face <laughs> and decided, that's it. <laughs> that day we moved her down to the pub. And um, we decided that we thought we'd learned some of the lesson, but there was a boundary. I could cope. John could cope. Do not touch my child. Um, and, and that's the sort of difficult lesson that can... She came back to visit us about 12 years later, gone from having a great head of black hair to having 
electric blue hair about this short all over her head. Um, she was living in Northern Territory. She'd survived. You know, I'd have thought she'd have been dead of something long before that. She'd survived. She couldn't remember any of the stuff that had gone on, I have to say. But I guess that whole story is to say, to actually find what scripture means can be quite costly in the practical sense. Um, but John and I together had a, a purpose, a direction. We were trying to find out what God means when he says love people. So anyway, enough of that story. But <laughs> um, So maybe you can see why I think finding balance is one of the biggest changes, challenges we face as individuals and as a church. But how could we... How could it be otherwise? Because I think I'm talking about being real. We don't want a church for super spits floating around on spirit-induced clouds thinking they hear God say one weird impractical thing after another. I want to be a real person. Life for everyone is a bit of a balancing act, but at least we know as Christians the balancing beam we're standing on, the eternal, unshakable truths of the kingdom. And if you're not sure, spend some time thinking about it, talking about it, and clarifying those things. Now, rather than wandering on talking about the challenges of finding balance, I'd like to conclude with trying to tease out some of the signs of developing balance. How will I know that I'm becoming more and more balanced? I think I'm a more balanced person now than I was when I was 25. And I think I have some reasons for saying so. Right. How will we know that HCC is a balanced expression of the life of Christ? I don't think balance is achieved by setting lots of rules and guidelines and policing them carefully and ticking them off to show the world how spiritual we are. We have gone through that in this church over the years, probably every church. I guess we've done it in families, you know, all the things up in the fridge that you've got to do and tick and all you know. We all have different ways of doing it. But one of the major steps is being willing to change, to admit that you've held a slightly warped view about something that's vital. One thing that I remember from the days of Joyce Meyer is that she had this expression, I think I'm right, but I may be wrong. It's a good thing for boys to learn this, right? I remember just a few months before my beloved husband died, he said it to me and I thought, oh, hallelujah, <laughs> because he was a person who would trap himself in always being right and finding it very difficult to admit that there could be room for error there. So we need to be willing to ad admit that there are things that need to change. I believe that because the church is the body of Christ, we should be looking for signs of Christ-likeness because that will indicate balance. Jesus lived the human life perfectly. His character, his actions, his words, his decisions showed that he had a perfect balance between a clear understanding of human nature and a loving acceptance of everyone, of always speaking the truth but doing it in love. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, patience and self-control are a short description of the lifestyle and character of Jesus. Is my life, is the life of this fellowship showing an ever-increasing evidence of love, joy, kindness, peace? 
They're a sign of balance, a sign of health. They are a fruit, according to the Bible, and fruit exists for two reasons. To be eaten, to bring pleasure and nourishment, and to carry the seed, the promise of life. When people taste our lives, individually and as a group, they should not be caused to shudder and want to spit us out. Impurity, gossip, rebellion, foolishness, pride, disinterest, those are poor fruit with an unpleasant taste and people won't want to come back for more. But if they bite into our lives, experiences up close and their response is, that was good. I don't necessarily understand what they're on about, but those people are so loving. They're really joyful. It's fun to be with them, how thoughtful they are. Sweet fruit in our life and thus in the church. So the church won't be sweet unless it's got lots of sweet people in it. It won't be joyful unless it's got lots of joyful people in it. It won't be kind unless it's got lots of people who are determined to grow in kindness. Gee, it's a rare thing, kindness. It's a rare thing. So people will come back to eat the fruit, and if they do, they maybe will find the seed, the truth of God in Christ in the midst of our church life. So the character of Jesus showing forth in individuals and in the church as a whole is a sign of balance to me. What else did Jesus show? Well, a balanced church will lead, lean toward grace. And when judgment is needed, it will be done respectfully by the leaders. It will be a church that is slow to cast the first stone. Rather, it will extend grace and forgiveness and a helping hand over and over again. This is a lovely verse. Romans 15, 7 says, Christ accepted you, therefore accept one another. Pretty straightforward, really. That doesn't mean we always understand everyone or even approve of them. And to be honest, we won't even like everybody in our church family. Terrible thing. But a balanced church will strive to accept, to love, to enfold, to respect all people whom God has wanted to place in its care. It's a call on all of us. If Jesus has accepted me, what right have I to feel that he shouldn't have included you too? A balanced church will try to be open and transparent in its communication. Individually and corporately, it will want to encourage and build people up, and yet it will have the capacity to say uncomfortable and confronting things when necessary. Jesus certainly did that. Remember, you brood of vipers. Oh, you of little faith. Get behind me, Satan, he said to Peter. To be angry is the same as murder. To have lust in your heart is just like committing adultery. He said tough things, unpopular things. A balanced church will struggle to say, to have that balance between love and truth. And we'll have to keep doing it. This verse in 1 Corinthians 16, I think is, is also very significant. 16, 6, verse 12 and 13 says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, 
but God will do away with both of them, yet the body is not for immorality, it is for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. There's a balance in that. We are free people. The church was never meant to be a place full of restrictions. Don't eat this, Christians mustn't drink or dance or see movies or dress with style. But there has to be a balance. This scripture says that we are free to do whatever we like. All things are permissible. And that can be taken and be an extreme. But if they are mastering us, if we can't do without them, if they make other people stumble, probably even more importantly, well, no, not more importantly, but I think that's the sense here, if they make other people stumble, if they're damaging our health, our body, the temple of the Holy Spirit, if they make our thinking dirty or distract us from the purpose of God, then they are not profitable and we should choose to do something about them. That's balance, being able to recognise these things and being honest with yourself that this is a problem in my life. It's not pretend it isn't. It's a problem. The last sign I want to mention, and it is the most obvious, and it really encompasses all of those above. John 13, 34 to 35, and I didn't mark it, so you just have to wait a moment. And you know this so well. Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. A balanced church is full of people who choose to love one another as Jesus loved his earthly family of disciples. Love with patience, compassion, delight, a desire to see others grow into all that God has planned for them, with joy, along with the irritation and strain that can accompany such an effort, A persistent love that keeps on forgiving. A truth-filled love that is not afraid of confrontation when the need arises. A love that's willing to lay down its own wants and desires for the good of others. A love so strong that it can bind together people of widely different backgrounds, characters, into a family that shows the world around that has found purpose for being here on earth and fulfilling it. Jesus is our guide and model. We can check ourselves out to see if we're growing in balance. When an incident happens, don't just look to see how far short you might fall so you can beat yourself up. We're really quite good at doing that. Also look for signs of growing godliness. I think I was a bit more patient with that person than I usually am. Thank you, Lord, you're doing something. Thank you for helping me to be kind in that situation. Well, I was glad to give back that extra change that they gave me. You must be causing me to be honest from the inside out. Choose to be thankful for the signs of growth in yourself. Don't just beat yourself up. And say it to people. If you see things in their life that is lovely... That was, I just was so blessed by how, how kindly you spoke to them, that you listened really well. You know, say it to one another because it builds one another up. Rejoice in signs of Christ-likeness. It is a sign of growing balance, which is good for you and for the health of the body of Christ. A balanced church is one whose members are individually learning to find balance, poise, sure-footedness 
in all aspects of life. Remember that sure foot. It's a lovely thought to be sure-footed, not to be anxious about everything you choose to do. Healthy cells make up the healthy body of Christ. It's not just somebody else's job to keep the church in balance. It's up to every one of us. Jesus is coming back for a pure, spotless bride. Let's do our bit to ensure that HCC is a gorgeous creature. Lord, I ask you to... Touch our minds and our hearts and cause us to be unwilling to stay rigid. Cause us to have a desire to be fruitful people, fruitful in the sense of growing in the likeness of your Son. Cause us to long for our church to continue to grow with balance and humour and strength and wisdom and forgiveness and acceptance and all of those things that express the life of Christ. I ask you, Lord, to speak to individual hearts in the next few days, in the next few weeks, about the balance in their lives and not to be anxious about it, but to come to you to find ways forward. I ask this in Jesus' name.